0: plushcare.com slash loss Hello, and welcome to Gone Medieval. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and today we're going to be hearing about a very new discovery that I'm really quite excited about. Now, when new discoveries are reported in the media, the journalists usually describe archaeologists as either surprised or baffled, and most of the time, we're neither of those. We most likely just nod and say, of course, that confirms our suspicions. But very recently, a discovery was reported that genuinely did baffle and surprise an awful lot of us. I'm talking, of course, about the scientific dating of the CERN-Abbis giant, a 55-meter-high nude chalk figure cut into a hillside in Dorset in southern England. The figure is most famous for the fact that it looks a little bit like a cartoon character holding a large club in his right hand and displaying a very prominent erect penis. Now, the reason many of us were baffled is that there was a relatively widespread belief that the figure was carved as late as the 17th century, although some also believed it may have been prehistoric or made in the Roman period. But that was not what the new evidence showed. In fact, it's been given a new date that opens up a whole new set of interpretations and thoughts about the giant's creation and function. With me today, I'm delighted to have the National Trust archaeologist in charge of the Surnava's dating project, Dr. Martin Papworth, who has agreed to come and talk to me about his organization's biggest member, Thank you for joining me, Martin.
1: Yeah, good to meet you, Kat.
0: We're going to get back to the actual dates and the actual results in a moment, although seeing as this is a podcast focusing on the medieval period, some of the sort of smart cookies out there might have worked out what that might be. But I wanted to start a little bit with the background. And I wondered, Martin, for the benefit of those listeners out there who might not have driven down the sort of winding lanes of rural Dorset and seen him for themselves, Could you explain a little bit more about the giant and the setting and whether we have anything else like it in England?
1: We have other chalk figures, but nothing like the Cernabas giant. The two other places you might think about in relation to him would be the Uffington White Horse in Oxfordshire or the Wilmington Longman in Sussex. But the Uffington White Horse has been dated to the late Bronze Age, early Iron Age period, and the Wilmington Longman is thought to be Tudor in date. So of those three, until 2020, Sir Labber's giant was the one that we didn't really know, or at least we hadn't taken this opportunity of trying out this optically stimulated luminescence dating technique which he had been used on the other two. So if you drive from Dorchester and you're heading to Sherbourne, nice quiet right through the heart of Dorset. And when you get, get beyond Cernabers, you turn into a lay-by, and there he is on a steep side of a hill. And that's the best way of looking at him, really. If you went up to him and tried to climb the fence, you wouldn't really get any idea of what he looks like. He'd be too giant and you wouldn't be able to see him in any detail. If you feel like you're in the very centre and the heart of rural Dorset, you feel set back in time. It's a, it's a very good place to go.
0: So he's really meant to be seen from a distance and seen as you're sort of travelling through, I suppose. He's
1: best seen from the opposite side of the valley on the Siddling St Nicholas Hill. But that's a hard place to get to. But if you're driving along the valley bottom, then there's a special place to stop and look up at him. But you see him at a bit of an angle. He's visible. You can see him reasonably well from there.
0: And what's in the area? Because it's quite rural, isn't it? Is there a village? Is there anything else? Is there a a sort of good reason for having a figure in a place like that?
1: Well, in the medieval period, Cern was a small town. And certainly from the 10th century, there was an important monastery there, established in 987 AD. But there's evidence or there's some medieval documentation that there was something that predates that monastery as a Religious site there, Christian site there.
0: But he's still in a sort of quiet location, I suppose. So I guess with a bit of a modern perspective, it doesn't necessarily make all that much sense. But you have led this new project then to date the giant. But before that started, as you've already mentioned, we really didn't know exactly when he dated to. But there were quite a lot of different theories. And I was hoping we could just go through some of those. So if we start with the oldest, so this belief that he might have been prehistoric, what was that based on?
1: Just by the look of him, really. So above him, there is a very interesting rectilinear earthwork which is called the Trendle. It has the kind of look of a Romano-British temple. There's a sort of little platform inside it with traces of a building there. So if you were looking at him as being a prehistoric or a Roman representation, that would grow quite nicely with the earthwork above him being a temple. I guess as far as the prehistoric side, he's linked to a Celtic god known as Ser And I guess it's just the name that links him with that. But if you wanted to link him to a Roman classical god, he looks just like Hercules as he's presented on sculptures and paintings and carvings. Yeah. So he has a club above his head, he has an outstretched arm and some people think that once the figure's been lost now but he's been picked up slightly on geophysical survey that all across his arm there was a lion's skin or a cloak or something like that which would be typical of a representation of Hercules.
0: So that's quite an understandable interpretation I suppose from a sort of stylistic perspective. Yeah. But of course the difficulty is because we don't have lots of others of them we can't say... This is what, what it would have looked like at the time, and then moving sort of forwards a little bit to the most recent assumptions. Now, I remember going on a field trip as an undergrad to see the Sunneva's Giant, and my lecturers being very convinced that he was made in the seventeenth century, and that seemed to be quite a sort of common uh, agreement. What does that come from, and why do people think he's, he's that recent?
1: Well, mainly because there's no real historical record of him before sixteen ninety four, and that. Reference was found in the church warden's accounts of CERN Abba's parish church. There was a Bristol University lecturer called Joe Betty who went through as many documents as he could possibly find. One of the key bits of evidence was a detailed survey of the manor of CERN dated 1617 which talked about Trendle Hill and mentioned nothing about the giant. And so coming out from that, they believed that he wasn't there, so that he must be post 1617 and before 1694. And then they looked at the owners of the land in that period of time. It was held by Sir Thomas Freak, who acquired the property. He died in 1633. And then a man called Denzel Hollis, married into the family, married the the widow. He was a parliamentarian. He was a bit of a geezer, really. He sort of supported Cromwell. And when it looked like it was better to support the king, he supported the royalist cause. And uh, associated with his ownership is a designed landscape garden. The earthworks that can still be seen on the site of the old medieval abbey. There seem to be 17th century in date. In fact, the Trendle may have been repurposed as a sort of eye-catcher for that garden. And it may be that he decided to lay out the giant as part of that, and to use it as a sort of lampoon of Oliver Cromwell, who was sometimes compared with Hercules. So it's a sort of Renaissance Herculean figure, I suppose. That's that theory. And then there's another theory that he might be William III, who was often linked with Hercules as well. If you go to Hampton Court Palace, a lot of the representations there of his time are of the labours of Hercules and William III as a strong defender of the Protestant cause. And he shown as Hercules on medallions and coins. Yeah, so there there are two theories from the seventeenth century and owners that might give you an explanation of why the giants there.
0: And they I mean they were quite convincing. I remember when I learnt about these they, I was relatively convinced of that. Because That fact that we have some earlier records about the location and about the site that don't mention this very striking feature, that to me seemed to be quite a good sort of reason. But could it be that those sort of documents just simply wouldn't have mentioned it? I mean, is it likely there were documents, but that they just wouldn't go into detail?
1: Well... Looking at him, he's a bit obvious, isn't he? (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, all these, you say, well, yeah, perhaps some things you might overlook, but can you really overlook the Cernabas giant? (laughs) Yeah, it's been quite convincing. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly, the more I've looked at him and the more I've looked at the evidence, I was pretty convinced when we went into the excavation that that's what we'd find, that when we took our samples from the lowest levels, that we would find he was. 17th century.
0: Yeah, likewise, I was expecting more or less the same. Well, let's get straight to that then, actually. Let's talk about that dating project. Had anybody actually tried to do any scientific dating of him before this project started?
1: No, we wanted to, but every time we got to the point, the money wasn't there. And so I asked again in 2019, because the National Trust was given CERN giant by the Pitt Rivers family, in 1920 so we were approaching our 100th anniversary of owning the cern giant and uh, in preparation for that we gave him a re-chalking he needs to be re-chalked every 20 years or so so August that year, he was re-chalked, and I asked uh, Hannah, the general manager, well, could we do it? We're going to have a celebration in July 2020. Couldn't we announce, you know, the results of our, a small excavation, do this OSL dating? And that's when she said, yep, yeah, let's go for it. So I went to the site in September that year with Mike Allen, who is an environmental archaeologist, a soil scientist, and he too had been involved with Wilmington and Uffington, and he wanted to get a date from CERN. So we went up there, climbed over the fence, up to his feet. And we noticed what had happened in the heavy rain since the August re-chalking is that it had washed the soil down his legs. So the chalk had built up into his feet and spilled out over the edge, forming a little terrace. And it's quite obvious that this had been something that had happened for hundreds of years. So if we wanted to find a spot where we could take these samples, it's at the bottom of the feet and at the elbows, where there's this sort of build-up on the horizontal and the steep slope of the hill, which follows the contours. It catches the silt as it comes down and forces the feet to come up and then the elbows to come almost to a level. So we went back, went to the pub and hatched our plot in the village. And then in March, we came out to dig our four narrow trenches, or opens 0.6 metres wide, two metres long across the outline of the chalk figure. It took us a week and we were going down to catch the lowest level and the earliest
0: re-chalking. So that's a, quite an important point, isn't it? Because what you need, obviously, as you just said, it needs to be sort of re-chalked and re reworked essentially over time. So what you wanted was to get right at the earliest possible date for it, so the sort of original dating. So you had to do the excavations first to get to that, Level is that right?
1: That's right. Yes. How else could we get these samples? And we didn't want to take them from one an area that had been dug out and lost. That's why these locations were really good. Well, the other thing about it was that it was the very last week we could have done it before lockdown. Unexpectedly, yes. we normally we wouldn't have dug in March. February had been really, really rainy, and it looked like March wasn't going to be much better. A bit too cold to be on a windy hillside digging a hole. But it worked out all right. And as we drove to the site each day, we could hear bits and pieces gradually being shut down around Britain. And in fact, on the Monday following, that's the last time I went into the office for over a year. So we just about did it in time.
0: Lucky timing.
1: We found as we went down the different layers, which were very interesting. I've worked with on the site for over a quarter of a century, so I could recognise the first three chalkings because I was there. And then we went into a 1978 level, And then we found the kibble chalk that was put in there in the 1956. And then beyond that, we thought we could see 1920s, possibly Pitt Rivers in the late 19th century, that famous archeologist who owned the site then, he had it re-chalked at that time by 1897. And we were still going down to other types of compaction and silty layers. And we hit another lumpy chalk layer, which went right down into the chalk But that cutting, the earliest cutting into the chalk, actually went through a hollow which had been scooped out into all four of our trenches. You could see the same thing happening. And if you imagine it, on a steep hillside like that, when you first create a chalk figure, it's quite easy. You you lift the turf and there's not much topsoil. You'll be able to hit the natural chalk and just your chalk canvas is inscribed into the chalk natural. But that doesn't Last for long it gets dirty it fills with weeds and more soil comes down the hillside and next time you come to re-chalk it there's lots of soil there and you soon lose an ability to chalk the natural chalk you have to bring chalk in to make it white again and that's what happened that's what we saw when we were digging.
0: Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers and over on the Warfare podcast, we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know.
1: Need to stock up on any weather wardrobe staples? Check out American Giant for hoodies, jackets, sweats, and more pieces you can wear anywhere. All made right here in the USA. Go to
0: American-Giant.com and use code AnyStyle24 for 20% off your order. Wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. So that's quite exciting in itself, really, that the stratigraphy, this layering, is actually telling you so much about the recent history of the sites as well and everything that's been done to it. But how on earth do you date scientifically date something like this because a chalk figure chalk cutting is not something that we can radiocarbon date it doesn't have anything organic that we can give a certain date to and you did mention the method earlier on but i was hoping you could explain a little bit about what exactly it was you did to get those scientific dates
1: so normally archaeologists collect finds in layers And we hope to find bits of organic material like charcoal or bone or shell, wood, which we can send for radiocarbon dating. Or we hope for different types of pottery that might give a date. But all we had was chalk. All sorts of different types of chalk, but basically chalk. So that's why we used optically stimulated luminescence, OSL for short, which is a way of measuring the last time a piece of soil has seen light. So what Phil Toms from Gloucestershire University did was he'd come and he'd collect samples of soil from our section, which we dug down to the lowest level, and collected tubes of soil, which he could take back to the lab and open in darkroom conditions. So if you're familiar with the way... Old-fashioned photography worked. In a dark room, you'd open up the film and you'd process it in a dark room. It's just the same thing with these soil samples. You isolate the quartz in these samples, and those little fragments of quartz collect the light. And uh, you can measure, like a radiocarbon date, I think, the half-light of the exposure of that chalk. The last time it was exposed to light, the radioaction active waves it releases. I hope that's about right, but I'm not a physicist. But generally, it's measuring how long these samples have been buried for. Yes. So we took five samples and one of them didn't have enough quartz in and it couldn't be dated, but the other four did yield dates.
0: And um, what were those dates?
1: So you've got these this chalk layering, like almost like a dam with these silts coming down the hill, going over the top of them. The most recent of these dates, which was still about 70 centimetres down from the turf on the surface that date was 1510 to about 1120 so they're broad ranges and they within that broad date round there's a 66 percent chance of it lying within that from the 12th to the early 16th century so yes they are quite broad but they are you know in all that date range it is medieval that particular one later medieval but if you put a central date on that it was 1250 so the next one down had a similar broad date range it went from the 10th century to the uh, about 1300 in the mid-date range was 1240 and then we got a sample from the very bottom chunky chalk that cut into the natural chalk and that was a date range from 650 AD to 1300 and that gave us a, a mid-range date range of 980 AD. And then the one filling this scoop into the natural chalk, the very earliest cut into the chalk natural, which the earlier dated cut through, that one, it's all very technical, archaeological stuff, in that stratigraphic layer was 700 AD to 1120 AD. So a mid-range of 905 AD. So that was a surprise. All of them yes. were medieval, and two of them had a Saxon 10th century mid-range date.
0: And that really was quite staggering, wasn't it? Because that was, I mean, even you, you said yourself you've been working at this site for a very long time and, and you weren't expecting that.
1: No, not at all.
0: So trying to sort of pick that apart because it is a really complicated set of results. But what we do know is that it definitely cannot be prehistoric or Roman, right? So the sort of earliest possible date for it is... It's about 700?
1: Yes, that's right. So although the bottom chunky chalk layer gave a 650 earlier range, it can't be earlier than 700 AD, which was in this colluvial deposit, that feature cut through. So yes, 700 AD. And certainly Phil Toms, the scientist, said to me, "Nope, nothing earlier than that. Must be at least 700 AD. So as you say, that wipes out the prehistory and Roman interpretations.
0: Yeah, so we can throw that one out the window, and then uh, the rest of the dates are all falling in the medieval period, so this sort of early medieval date, I suppose, so from 700 to about 1100, somewhere in that range seems to be the most likely for when this figure originated. Is that the right picture?
1: Yes, that's right, yeah.
0: So that's really interesting, so that means that the later dates, those 17th century dates, again, are also not right. So we are really left with quite a different scenario. So Going back then to the interpretation of that, I mean, there are people in the past who have suggested an Anglo-Saxon or early medieval date, aren't there? So, so what, what were those theories that, that might fit with this result?
1: Yes, you have to go back to William of Malmesbury, who was a 12th century historian, writing about 1125, that sort of period, and he describes CERN and he tells the story of St Augustine, who came to Britain and evangelised Ethelbert of Kent, He said after doing that, he moved out into other parts of Britain and came to Dorset. He came to CERN, he says, and there he found people who practiced paganism, who laughed at him and really sort of chased him and his monks out of town. And then subsequently, after prayer, Augustine returned and they were receptive to the faith and there was a well there, a sacred well which is now known as St. Augustine's World. This would be the end of, well, beginning of the 7th century, I suppose. It's that sort of period, except that Dorset was part of the Romano-Romanized British world, the sub-Roman world. It wasn't like Eastern Britain, which was part of the Saxon, pagan Saxon area. The people in the west of Britain were Romanized Christian. It doesn't really hold true. As I say, it's a 12th century legend, but the well is still known as St Augustine's Well, and it's a th- it's a theory that's gone through. And certainly, he mentions a god Hel that the local people worshipped, or Helith. He sometimes mentioned. He's a sort of brave warrior, sort of god. He doesn't mention the giant, but when the antiquarians came to look at the giant in the 18th century, they picked up on the local stories from the villagers, who told him it was Helith that the giant represented and were convinced that that was who he was.
0: So there's this idea of religion, of paganism, that this might have been some kind of a representation of an earlier pagan god. And obviously, if we look at the very earliest date, and we're talking about the sort of early Anglo-Saxon period, when religion, paganism versus Christianity is, is quite a sort of strong feature of what's going on in the country, then perhaps that could sort of fit with that. Obviously, there's a monastery, as we mentioned earlier, that was built in CERN in the late 10th century. If this was some kind of a pagan representation, is it likely then that they may have wanted to to essentially hide it or and to not sort of not actually have it on display? Could it be that perhaps it wasn't really quite fitting with local religious beliefs that that's why it's not mentioned?
1: Possibly, but yes, I mean, as I say, it does take a lot of effort to keep it visible on the hill. I suppose we you can speculate about how things were then. I mean, if you ever look at manuscripts. They 're beautifully illustrated with all sorts of quite crazy calligraphic figures aren 't they and if you were, if you were to go into a medieval church, it would be gaudy, it would be full of stories from the Bible, there would be great doom illustrations on the, over the charts large and so in that sort of context, we often imagine the inside of churches as quite plain whitewashed places, but they only really got like that in the dissolution in the sixteenth century before that you see these gothic carvings in churches, don't you? And I guess in that kind of context, you might imagine that they would use a figure on a hillside like that as some kind of parable, some kind of way of telling a story. I'm just just struggling here to try and put the two side by side. You know, it was a a big monastery full of holy men, and beside it was the Sir Giant. It's that sort of context you'd have to try and explore. But these dates are quite new. So it's quite hard to get your head around it, really.
0: Absolutely. I've been following this quite carefully. I know a lot of my colleagues who work on this period are extremely interested in, in trying to identify it. And there's a few suggestions that have come up on social media, especially one of them from one of my colleagues was suggesting that this could be an Anglo-Saxon depiction of St. Edwald, who was the local saint of CERN. And he was a hermit saint who was wandering in search of a place called Silver Fountain. And he actually fixed his staff at the top of a sloping cliff. This then turned green and sprouted leaves. And he found a spring flowing down and made his hermitage there. And the suggestion is in that club is actually his staff rather than a sort of Hercules-type club, and that this is the local saint. I mean, how do you think that fits into the picture?
1: Yes, I like that.
0: And another suggestion from another colleague as well was that, in fact, any sort of foliage growing from, you know, planting, uh, anything growing on it could make it seem like this was sort of sprouting, that perhaps there was even a tree or something like that that this was associated with. But as I said, I, I know colleagues aren't discussing this very much.
1: And of course, there's nothing to say that he hasn't been altered later on. He may have looked slightly different. As I say, our trenches were only in his elbows and his feet. Not in his club. His his club might have been changed. Other parts of him might have been changed.
0: Yeah, and in fact, you've got some more evidence, haven't you, that he might have been altered slightly. I was looking at the results from all your press releases and things, and one other thing you did was you looked at some LIDAR, so laser imagery of the giant, and that also had some quite interesting results, I believe.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah, we commissioned this drone footage, which picks up very (laughs) faint, traces of undulations in the ground what this showed was that he has a belt but the belt is interrupted by his penis but actually this lidar shows very faint trace of the line continuing so his penis might be an add-on it might be a later thing and so if that's the case his you know other parts of him like like the club may have been altered to make him look more like hercules than he was meant to originally
0: and aren't there also some early illustrations of him where he has a belly button? So, actually, so that the penis is much smaller and less prominent, and then there's a belly button.
1: That's right, yes.
0: It's quite possible then, isn't it, that that particular feature of his anatomy has been extended, so to speak?
1: Yes, that's right. That's supposed to have happened in the early 20th century when the workmen did a re chalking and just joined him up.
0: So, could it then be that we are looking at. An early medieval Anglo-Saxon figure that might have had some local significance, maybe a local saint, whether it was a a sort of Christian figure or a pagan figure, we don't know. But then actually later on, maybe even from the 17th century onwards, he was being altered. He was being changed to fit sort of new narratives and, and new ideas. And then somehow in the meantime, he was he was kind of forgotten about.
1: Yes, I like that idea certainly i was very interested you know that there was a, certainly from the archaeology it looked like after his initial creation there'd been a period of some time when he had been allowed to grow over and he was only later reinstated so i could i could imagine that for a while he could well have been hardly visible at all and then he perhaps could be seen in low sunlight and at some stage, they decided to reinstate him. And of course, I suppose if you have a saint, you know, the medieval period was very much about pilgrimage, wasn't it? To, to to go to the saint's shrine and to have an emblem on a hillside to that saint would be a sort of a good advertisement that you were there. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a nice, nice theory. It's always good isn't it to try and put things together. You can't be certain about them but yeah that would add up wouldn't it I think.
0: I think, I think that that works quite nicely. And it's nice as well because it shows how different generations different people who have been part of the the sort of St. Abbas and and that that part of Dorset have clearly had a different relationship. I mean, we have a relationship with him now and people come and see him and, and you work on the site. But then, you know, going back through time, back to perhaps the 700s, other people, he's had a different meaning in different time periods and different relevance, I suppose.
1: Yes, that's right. I think people in different generations and different outlooks have interpreted him in a way that suits them. I think, and comforts them or inspires them. He's many things to many people, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, is there any more work planned now that you've got these results? Or is this it now?
1: I think we need some more money. So we're going to, but I think we'll be able to get it. Certainly Mike Allen has a lot more to do on the soils and understanding how those soils were deposited. It looks at some stage as though the hillside has been ploughed. There's a lot of very coarse material so it wasn't turf at that time. He's also identified tiny micro snail shells, which show the different environment at different times. And some of these snails are only, in, only introduced to Britain in the medieval period. So I think we can add to that. Another thing is there's a part of me that doesn't quite believe these OSL dates. So I'm going to get another couple done. I spoke to Phil Toms this morning and he said, we're going to check a couple that we know the date of as a as a control. I just want to be 100%.
0: So there is still a small chance. This is a niggle of doubt. Is that right?
1: I think I have a niggle of doubt. I want to be reassured. That's because I haven't used OSL dates very often. So I guess I'm a, a more radiocarbon bloke, really, so... <laughs> we'll see. we'll see.
0: yeah, it does sound a little bit like magic, I think that you can expose to see when, when stones were exposed. but i do I do understand the science, but I still i do I do understand. But I mean, it is a really fascinating discovery and then a result, and I think it's made a lot of people really think about the early medieval context of the site. Clearly, there is a lot going on there, and there's a lot more to rediscover. so it'll be really interesting to follow this as we go and see how the the specialists in this region and this period add to that interpretation. Well, I personally think that even though there might be some doubts, maybe, it's a really fantastic new discovery and I think it does definitely fit in with some theories about what happens there in the early medieval period. So it would be great to hear what my colleagues continue to work on and perhaps we can get someone back to to try and, and do another interpretation of it. Martin, this really is a very fantastic new discovery. Thank you so much for coming along and talking about it today.
1: Lovely to speak to you, Kat.
0: So, if anyone finds themselves on holiday driving through Dorset, if you haven't seen the Cernabus giant for yourself before, do please make a stop and have a look. Definitely going to have to go back and see him again. That reaches the end of this episode of Gone Medieval. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and I'm going to be back next week with more medieval stories. But in the meantime, please do spread the word if you enjoyed listening to this episode. Do leave us a review and subscribe if you haven't already done so to Gone Medieval from History Hit. You can't really be proud of yourself if you don't know your history. Those were the words of Nelson Mandela and the foundation of a new podcast from the Times and the Sunday Times, Your History. Join me, Anna Temkin, Deputy Obituaries Editor of the Times, each week as we explore the astonishing lives that have shaped our own lives. Your History, available wherever you find your podcasts.